Good morning, everyone. How are you doing? It's good to be together today in God's house and for us to worship together. We're going to be looking at Ephesians 5. Obviously, from what you guys helped us do last week, we're going to be talking about marriages. The title of our message is Till Death Do Us Part. I want to start off with a story that was written by a young lady. Her name was Laura Allen, who is a journalistic student, a journalism student. And she wrote a story uh, when she was in college about her, about her grandparents who taught her about lasting love. I want us to learn a lesson from this story. Listen to what she wrote. She says, My grandparents were married over a half a century and played a special game ever since that they met each other. The goal of their game was to write the word Shmilly, S-H-M-I-L-Y, in surprise places for the other person to find. They took turns leaving Shmilly around the house, and as soon as one discovered it, it was then their job to hide it for the other person. They dragged Shmilly with their finger through the sugar container to await whoever would prepare the next meal. They smeared it in the dew on the window overlooking the patio where my grandmother always fed us homemade pudding. Shmilly was written in the steam on the mirror after a hot shower where it would reappear after bath after bath. At one point, my grandmother unrolled the entire roll of toilet paper just to put Shmilly on the very last sheet. There was no end to where Shmilly would pop up. Little notes with Shmilly were scribbled on them and they were found on the car seat or taped onto the steering wheel. The notes were stuffed into shoes and put under pillows. Shmilly was written in the dust on the mantle and traced in the ashes of the fireplace. The mysterious word was as much a part of my grandparents' house as the furniture. Grandma and Grandpa held hands every time they could. They finished each other's sentence and shared daily crossword puzzles. My grandmother whispered to me about how cute my grandpa was, the man she met on a blind date, and how handsome he was as an old man that he had grown to be. Before every meal, they bowed their heads and gave thanks, marveling at their blessings, a wonderful family, good fortune, and each other. But there was a dark cloud on my grandparents' life. My grandmother had cancer. The disease had appeared first 10 years earlier. And at that time, I remember that she painted her room yellow. With a yellow room, she explained, she would always be surrounded by sunshine, even if she was too sick to go outside and enjoy it. With the help of a cane and my grandfather's steady hand, they went to church every single week. But my grandmother grew weaker until she could no longer leave the house. For a while, Grandpa would go to church alone, pray to God to watch over his wife. And then one day, what we all dreaded finally happened. Grandma was gone. Shmilly. Shmilly was scrawled in yellow on a pink ribbon of my mother's grandmother's funeral bouquet. As the crowds thinned and the last mourners turned to leave, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, and my other families gathered around Grandma for one last time. Grandpa stepped up to my grandmother's casket and taking a shaky breath, he began to sing to her. Through his tears and grief, the song came and a deep, throaty lullaby. 
Shaking with my own sorrow, I will never forget that moment. For I knew then that although I couldn't begin to fathom the depth of their love, I had the privilege of witnessing its unmatched beauty. Shmilly, S-H-M-I-L-Y. See how much I love you. Thank you, Grandma and Grandpa, for letting me see this kind of love. This morning, I want to ask you a question. How do you want to end this journey of this life with your spouse? How do you want to end this journey with your spouse? Will you have a schmilly experience or will it be like so many others that their marriages end with tragedy, with shattered dreams, broken families, and dev devastation? The reality as we sit here today, there are some that are on a trajectory that is going in a good direction. You're living out the schmilly memories right now and you're going to end in this way. You're going to have that kind of experience because of the love that you have that's based on Jesus Christ. But the other reality is that there are some that are going in opposite direction and you may not know it because they're living a facade. They're living pretend. And they're making it look like everything is okay. But the reality is everything is not okay in the marriage. Things are very, very shaky. The fact is each and every person here has a choice to determine what their future will be. We can determine how we're going to do this if we're willing to come under the authority of what God's Word has to say. I'm not saying that there's not complicated situations. There are. There's many complicated situations. But the reality is God's truth is powerful. And it can, if we surrender to God's truth, it can guide and direct us and turn where we're going wrong into the right direction or can simply affirm where we're going and continue for us to, to do that. What I want to pray today is that God would preserve marriages and that the marriages at Mission View would be strong, right? We all want that. So let's pray that God would do that. Lord, I pray that as we get into your word, I pray that you would help us to have your mindset. I pray, Father, that you would do something special in this room today. For those marriages that are strong and healthy, I pray that they would be celebrated. I pray, Father, that we would celebrate what you're doing. But Lord, I pray for those that the marriages are hurting, and maybe it's not known because it's been kept secret, but it's not secret with you. So I pray that you would do something special in their hearts. May you use your word to pierce our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Now before I go too far into the message, our message is called Till Death Do Us Part. I'd like to address two groups of people. First of all, the, the, the two groups are those that are single and those that are divorced. For those of you that are single, I would ask that you would take this message because I know some of you would say, oh, this isn't a message for me. I could tune out. Don't tune out. A, it might be good preparation. It will be good preparation if God is to, to grant you to be married. Everything that we're going to talk about, call it premarital counseling, okay? Premarital counseling, and if you can get these things right now, it will save you from much grief. 
But also, some of you would say, well, I'm way past the marriage age. I mean, uh, my husband is deceased or what have you. Then I would simply encourage you to allow this message to motivate you to pray for those that are married. Because we need prayer. For those of you that are in the divorce category, please realize this. There is hope and there is healing on the other side of divorce. Last week we stated that Christ's followers are to live a new life. The reality is the grace of God gives us a do-over. And so my hope and prayer is that during this message, there would be a preparation that would be done in your own heart that if God were to open a door for you to get remarried, that you would do these things that are in God's Word and that you would apply them. So let's now go to God's Word in Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to pick up with the last verse that we didn't cover last week, verse 21, that has to do with marriage, but it also has to do with what we talked about the last two weeks. It says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now you'll notice, you'll notice that that is the last phrase in a very, very long sentence. If you know Paul's writings, you'll know that he is the king of run-on sentences. His sentence began in verse 15, and it ends in verse 21. Now, the word submitting here is a participle that is modified by a verb that's in verse 15. In other words, submitting is further explaining how a Christ follower is to walk wisely. Now, the word submit is a military term. It means to arrange under, to subject oneself, to obey. Now hold on to that meaning because we're going to hear it again in a little bit. This is what he is saying that we should do with one another. The church, in order for us to carry out the 12 resurrection principles that we've covered the last two weeks, in order for us to carry out those resurrection principles, there has to be a sense of, or a foundation of humility in our own heart. There has to be a foundation of submitting to one another in order for us to make it work. There's this idea that in order for us to live out the resurrected life, that we have to sometimes waive our preferences in order to live in unity and harmony within the body of Christ. Of course, this is exactly what Jesus was teaching in John 15 when he says, greater love is no one than this. Then he what? Lay down his life for his friend. This is the submission that makes this thing called the church work. This is what it's going to make it. This is what's going to make it work. Now, having stated that, Paul now bridges into relationships, human relationships. And today we're going to talk about the marriage relationship. And believe me, submission is going to, mutual submission is going to carry over into the husband-wife relationship. Next week we're going to see how it carries over into the family and the week after how it work, carries over into the workplace. So submission is foundational for each and every one of us. So let's take a look at what he has to say first to the wives. Now some of you men might be thinking in your mind you would never articulate this. It's a good thing that Paul's addressing the women first. Okay, that's good. Now I know you guys would never think such things, but if you do, please take note of this. 
There are three verses of instruction given to the women and nine verses of instruction to the men. What does that tell you? Okay, we got to get through this thick head of ours, guys. And so this is what he says to the women. He says in verse 22, he says, Wives, submit, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now in these three verses, Paul gives a command and a correlation. He is going to make a correlation in the passage. Please note that he's going to do the same thing for the men. Very easy learning here. One command for the men, one command for the women. The command for the woman is that she submit to her husband. Uh, please, please notice that this word submit is the same word that was used in verse 21. It means to arrange yourself under, to subject yourself, to obey. Now the wife is to willingly place herself under the authority of the husband as to the Lord. This means that her rendering submission to her husband is a service unto God. It doesn't mean that her husband's Lord. It means Jesus is Lord. And since Jesus discovered marriage, invented marriage, he has the right to tell us what to do in marriage. And so this is what he wants the wife to do. But let me tell you that there's a practical reason why he is talking to the women about submission. If you were to go back in time, remember Adam and Eve? Remember they made a mistake, pretty big one in the garden. They picked the, the forbidden fruit and God had to bring a curse down upon each of them. He said the man would work by the sweat of the brow. But do you remember what the curse of the woman would be? It says, and you will desire your husband. Now, as a man, I want to think, oh yeah, that's a great curse. My wife's going to want me. No, that's not what it means. What it means is that she is going to have a natural fleshly tendency to usurp the man's authority. That's what's going to happen, and that's what's going to take place, and that's what the woman is always going to have to deal with. And so this is why Paul is saying, in godly wisdom, this is what a woman is to do. She is to submit. Now the reason the wife submits is because her husband is the head of the wife. Now this is speaking to the role that God has established in marriage. Now to understand this role better, we need to understand the correlation. Notice what he says. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself the Savior. Now here, Paul gives an analogy he says, there's a body, there's a head, there's a body. And I want you to know, wives, you're kind of like this body and your husband is to be the head. Now, the correlation in order for you to understand this is that the church is the body. We are the hands, we are the feet, we are the, we are the, the body of Christ. But Jesus is the head. We know that the head is absolutely essential for everything that happens in the body. Our brain controls our thinking, our talking, our feeling, our hear hearing, our walking, our breathing. Everything is dependent upon the head. There is a dependency of the body with the head. 
This is true of the church, the spiritual body. Everything that we do here is dependent on the head. And you know why we study this? Guess what? This is the mind of Christ. This is his head. This is his thinking. This is what we want to understand. And so likewise, just as the body is dependent upon the head, uh, the wife is to be dependent on the husband. This is an issue of dependency and working together. Now, in summary, the correlation is this. The wife's role is to have a respectful dependency upon her husband. This is really an issue of respect. Here's a little formula for you to remember. Submission equals respect. How do we know this? We know this because if you look down to verse 33, after he says, let the husband love his wife, he says, let the wives see that she what? Respects her husband. The outcome of submission is always going to be one of respecting her husband. Now, wives, I want you to understand how powerful, a powerful role that God has given you in marriage. Dr. Eckridge, uh, in his book, Love and Respect, if you haven't read it, it is an excellent book. It will help. He points out that there's like this crazy cycle that people go through in their marriage. Once I identify it, you will understand it. It goes like this. She reacts without respect, and he in turn reacts without love. And the cycle continues that way. Now, here's how it happens in everyday life. The wife's mindset could be, honey, you, do, you, you have control over things at work. I'll take care of what's the, uh, the things here at home. And she makes independent decisions of her husband, whether it's financial, whether it's spiritual, whether it's family-related. And as a result... Her husband feels disrespected and he acts in an unloving way to his wife. As a result, the wife's spirit is crushed and her husband feels deflated. Now, if we turn this around to God's model, what happens is the wife acts dependent or interdependent upon her husband as the body does with the head and with regards to financial decisions or parenting decisions or spiritual decisions they are working through these things together and as a result he feels respected and shows more love to his wife and she feels uh, built up in the process now let me ask you women maybe you know the answer to this question why has God created us men that way? I have no idea. You're going to have to ask Jesus someday, but it is a reality that men thrive, thrive on respect. I know that this man does as well. Dr. Eckridge in his book took a survey of 400 men, and he asked them this question. He says, if you were forced to choose between one of the following, which would you prefer? A, to be left alone and unloved in the world, or B, to feel inadequate and disrespected by everyone. 74% of all the men said, I would rather be left alone and unloved in the world. Why? Because every man is created. There's something inside of them that says, I need to be respected. Paul knew this. But I want you to know that not only Paul knew this, Peter knew it as well. 
In 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2, it says this. Take note of the words. Likewise, wives, be subject to your husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wife when they see your what? Respectful and pure conduct. The fact is, respect is the deepest value that a man has. Let me ask you something. Why is it that men are predominantly men are willing to go off to war for the sake of God, country, and their family. Now, I know women do this as well, but predominantly and historically it has been men. And I believe the reason is that there's something in men placed there by God to fight and die for honor, to fight and die for family, and to fight for their friends. Why? Because respect gained, is gained by doing such noble tasks. Now, I want you to think of that. this. Wives, if your man is so willing to fight for a country and do something like that, don't you think he will fight for your marriage if he has a reason to? Wives, we need to capture the art of showing respect to our husbands. That is God's design. Now here's the application, only one application question, and you, you have homework with this, okay? Here's the application question. Wives, are you respecting your husband? Here's what I want you to do. Sometime this afternoon or sometime this week, I want you to ask your husband this question. I want you to ask him, do you feel respected by me? Now, here's the one caveat to this, this, uh, this question. You can't have a rebuttal, okay? You can't have, because guys are thinking, okay, let me calculate this out. Is it really worth me asking this question because I know the kind of conversation this is going to result in because, oh, it's not going to end pretty. No, you have to be willing to actually hear the answer and give no rebuttal whatsoever, but pray about that answer. Maybe you will like what you hear, but there may be truth that you need to hear. Now let's go to the husbands. Husbands, let's start in verse 25. Take note of the words he uses. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. I'll, I'll explain that word in a minute. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now, in these verses, Paul gives one command and one correlation. The command here is for husbands to love their wife. Now, the word love is agape. It is the highest form of unconditional, sacrificial love that any person can show another human being. Now, the reason that the husband loves his wife is because she represents his body. 
Now I find it interesting that Paul kind of puts it on a very basic level that every man could understand. Let me put it in layman's terms here. Paul's saying, look guys, you, you, you know how to take care of your body. You know what it's like. You know what it's like to feed yourself. Oh, you don't miss a meal, do you? You like to feed yourself. You like to take care of yourself. You also cherish your body by taking care of it. Implied is that give yourself good hygiene. You, you work out. You sleep. You do all this for yourself. So if you know how to do this for you, then you know exactly what to do for your wife because you're to do what you do for yourself above and beyond for your wife. See, the tone of this passage is that this is not a love that says, I'm superior over you kind of love. No, no, no. This is a love that says, I am going to nurture you. I am going to, I'm going to cherish you. I am going to love you with all my heart. So here's the formula for the men. Love equals cherish and honor. Cherish and honor. Not only does Paul say this, but Peter says this as well. It's reaffirmed in other scriptures. 1 Peter 3, 7 says this. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing what? Honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter is saying that men should value and prize their wives as equals with, within the grace of God. This tells us that a wife longs to be the special person in her husband's eyes. Dr. Eckridge, in his book, says this, It is as though she is the princess and he is the prince. The prince goes into battle for the princess, not vice versa. Consequently, the princess does not seek to be respected as the head. Instead, she yearns. She yearns to be honored, valued, prized as a precious equal. Men, have you ever thought of why you and I are bigger and stronger than women? Now, I know there's a few exceptions to that, but bear with me on this, okay? I believe it's because God has constructed us to be the warriors for our wife and family. I was reading in Nehemiah this week, and the men were building the wall around the city to protect their families, and the enemy came, and this is what Nehemiah told them. He says, I want you to fight for your brothers, fight for your sons, fight for your daughters, fight for your wives. See, something in a man longs for his wife to look up to him to fulfill this kind of role. And when she does, it motivates him. Not because he's arrogant, but because this is how God has constructed the man. Men, when we honor our wives as first importance, when we exalt them as the princess in our life, when we let them know how cherished and honored they are, then they will respect us and they will love us. And this makes marriage work. But when we don't show honor, when we show dishonor to our wife and we say negative things to them in the about them in the workplace or when we're not around them or when we're with them and they in turn start to nag and start to show disrespect to us, you could see why it doesn't work. 
Now what cements this whole concept of submission and, and loving together is verse 25, is the correlation. He says this, in verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And then he proceeds and gives three ways in which Christ loved the church. Now, men, please take note of this, because these are things that he is saying, this is a correlation. Jesus did this. I want you to do this. This is where more instruction is given to us. Number one, this is what's to happen in verse 25. He gave himself up for her. I want you to think about that. Jesus gave himself up for her. Philippians says that he emptied himself. Now some of us might operate on three quarters of a tank for us, one quarter for her. Please understand that's not the ratio that God's given. He says 100% for her. You are to give, you are to empty yourself on behalf of her. This redefines how society might view or define what a husband's all about. Because now we're not looking at a macho person. We're not looking at a bodybuilder. We're not looking at the coolest person around. We're looking at, in our society, we're looking at Jesus as the model. So how did Jesus do it? How did he give himself up for the church? Well, if you go through the Gospels, you will take note of these things. Jesus showed compassion to the down and out. Jesus fed the multitudes. Jesus healed the sick with tenderness. Jesus was merciful to those that did not deserve mercy. Jesus served his disciples by washing their feet and ultimately dying for the sins of the world. Men, you want to know how you should love your wife? Do as Jesus did. You are to show compassion. You are to make loving provision for your wife. You are to demonstrate a tender care for your wife. You are to give mercy even when mercy feels like it's undeserved. You are to serve in tasks that are less desirable. And ultimately, you are to die to your own needs, exalting the needs of your spouse. Jesus gave himself. He emptied himself. How are we to do it? Men, we are to give of ourselves. We are to empty ourselves. Number two, Jesus says in verse 26, look at this. He says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. What are we to do? Well, we're to sanctify our wife. I'll tell you how in a minute. But let's look at what Jesus did. He sanctified her. You say, Steve, what's the word sanctified mean? It means to set apart. It means to set apart as for something that is sacred, something that is special. In other words, this is the model that God did for us. He set apart those that were called the body of Christ, called the church. Now I want you to know, he has set us apart in this world for now, and he's in the process of setting us apart. But there is also something future that's going to happen called a wedding. In Revelations 19, there's going to be a day that the church is going to be united in the greatest bond of intimacy that we could ever have with our Savior, Jesus Christ, where we go into eternity and spend eternity with him. But for right now, what's he doing? He's sanctifying us. Why is he doing that? He is sanctifying us. He is setting us apart so that we might be a pillar of truth in society. 
It says that in 1 Timothy 3, that we are to be a pillar of truth and that there will be, he's sanctifying us so that we would be set apart for that marriage day. He's taking care of his bride. He's looking after us. The reason he doesn't let you run with sin and run rampant in it is because you're part of his bride. He loves you. He would rather take you home before he would have you disgrace his name. He wants to, that's why he disciplines us. That's why he convicts our heart. He helps us to understand, no, 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 you're out of balance. I love you. You're my bride. I'm I'm carrying you to this day that we're going to be united. I'm taking care of you. Now you wonder, uh, now it's interesting, it says that he washes us with his word. Please understand that we're first washed in the blood of Christ when we realize that we're sinners separated from God. And when we yield to him, Hebrews says that his blood covers us. His blood covers us. So we're washed in the blood. Therefore, we're placed in this thing called the body of Christ. And then he uses his word to wash us. James 4 talks about that our minds and hearts might be pure before him. That's why we're in his word now. That's why we spend time in his word. So he washes us. This is what he wants to do. So you say, man, the men look at this and say, well, what am I supposed to do? I I can't make my wife holy. No, you can't make her pure. But this is what you can do. You can provide spiritual leadership that will lead your wife into pure ways. It is possible, men. It is possible for your marriage to be set apart for God, resulting in that your marriage becomes an example and a legacy for those that have come behind you. It is possible. It should be. And I believe if we apply God's principles here, and we are intentional, then we can see our our marriages as sanctified. The third thing is he presents her. Take a look at verse 27. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, wrinkle, or such things, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, this is what Jesus is doing with his church. This is what he is doing. He's preparing us for that wedding day someday, Revelations 19, that will take place. Now, I believe he's giving this parallel so that we can understand on a human level as well. Can you imagine going to your wedding day and all of a sudden your bride turns the corner, her hair's messed up, she's black and blue, she's dirty, she gets dirt all over her, her dress is torn, it's wrinkled, it's, it's stained, has coffee stains all down the front. You would look and say, that's crazy. No bride is going to present themselves that way. That's exactly correct. A bride is going to take utmost care of her body of her presentation. What's interesting is Paul is painting a picture of how Jesus is going to present his own bride. Now, most brides prepare themselves, but in this context with the church, it is Jesus's job to prepare us for that wedding day. And he is making us so that we will be glorious, radiant, untainted by sin, perfect in presentation. That's what it means to be without spot or stain or wrinkle or blemish. So how does a husband work on his presentation of his bride? Although a husband cannot make his wife holy, he can set her aside as his priority. He can do all that he can to show her honor 
and to present her publicly as his absolute precious gift that God has given him. He should strive to paint an image of his wife in the best light possible before others and before God. Men, that's what we're to do. So here's the application for the men. Here we go. And there's homework with this as well. Husbands, are you loving your wife? Now, the same caveat goes with this question as well. You are to ask this question to your wife. You're to say, honey, am I loving you? And you're not allowed to give a rebuttal. You're only allowed to listen and process what she says. That's what I need you to do for us to apply God's word. Friends, God's making a parallel of the husband and wife relationship with Christ and the church for a reason. Because there will be that day that we spend eternity with Christ. We will be his holy bride. Do you realize that? Now, as we close out our service, I want us to be mindful of that day. And we're going to play a song now. And the song is all dealing with that wedding day. It's all dealing with the wedding day of, the, of, the, of Jesus with his bride. And because we know this is going to be happening, it should have a profound impact on how we operate in this life right now. Allow this to prepare your hearts. In a moment, we're going to go to a time of prayer, praying as couples. But I want you to listen to this song, Holy. It's the wedding day song.